For us before we look further at this uh, section of scripture together. Uh, Lord God, uh, you are a God who speaks. You have revealed yourself throughout history and you speak to us today in a living and active way. Uh, you speak to us through your word and we pray you would do that this morning uh, with the aid of your Holy Spirit. Open the doors and eyes of our hearts and minds such that we can understand uh, this passage of scripture uh, in its gospel context and we can, as a result, uh, be moved to more joyfully trust Christ and live each day in his service. Amen. Uh, the other day I was uh, looking over my bookshelf and I came across a rather special book. Uh, it was my father's Bible. It was given to him on the day of his ordination. Uh, he was a Church of England minister. Uh, as I opened the front cover, I noticed uh, this label which had been inserted, and I've got a photo of it here. Uh, Jonathan James Colmore Nodder, in memory of his ordination as priest on Sunday, 25th of September, 1966, in Chester Cathedral. Well, ordination as priest. Uh, is that a right way to describe what happened to my father in that cathedral all those many years ago? Uh, as I followed in its, his footsteps, uh, should you now be addressing me as your priest? Uh, is it right to think of me as a member of the clergy and as you uh, being the laity? Is it valid to make that distinction? Uh, another question, uh, why am I not wearing clerical clothing? Uh, what should we be doing as we meet together as God's people? Uh, how should we be drawing near to God? These are some of the questions that we will be exploring together today in this third sermon in this series in Leviticus, at the shadow of better things to come. Uh, as I mentioned last week, uh, we don't tend to come to the book of Leviticus with rocket-high expectations. Uh, it's just seen as an ancient book of rules and regulations. Uh, let's be honest. Uh, if it's a choice between Leviticus and the sports or fashion section of the newspaper, most people don't find themselves on the horns of a dilemma. However, I think as we began to see last week, that because this is God's word, and because this book is so foundational to understanding the New Testament, even the rules and regulations have powerful things to teach us today. Leviticus is in fact not just rules and regulations because as we're going to see uh, in chapters 8 to 10, they're actually narrative. Uh, they describe events that happened. Uh, the question, of course, the big tension at this point in the Bible is how could a holy God dwell amongst an unholy people? And of course, uh, God has put in place these various mechanisms and institutions. And everything now seems to be ready. Uh, the tabernacle, uh, the tent of meeting, has been erected. I've got a picture of it here. So there it is, uh, the tabernacle, uh, God, the place where God would dwell amongst his people. Uh, God had also given detailed instructions about what sacrifices were to be brought by the people to enable them to relate to him. But there was still one thing that was missing, and that is the priests. It was the priests who would offer the sacrifices to God. And so in chapters 8 to 10 of Leviticus, 
This final piece of the jigsaw is put into place. But rather than just being a set of instructions, these chapters tell us the story, uh, the story of the first priests. And we're going to see the story falls into three parts, which correspond with the chapter divisions. Uh, chapter 8 is all about the ordination of the priests. Uh, chapter 9 is all about the service of the priests. And then chapter 10 is all about the unexpected death of some of the priests. What we're going to say is that, um, see, is these three events are foundational to right understanding of how we engage with God today. So we're going to look at each of them in turn. Uh, the ordination of the priests, the service of the priests, and then the death of the priests. Uh, because of chapters 8 to 10 being so long, uh, we only had excerpts in the reading. Uh, so let me just familiarize you with what has happened in chapter 8. Uh, verses 1 to 5, the Lord tells Moses to take Aaron and his four sons and to assemble the people at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And then chapter, verses 6 to 13, uh, Moses does that and he dresses up Aaron and his sons in some special uh, ceremonial clothing. And he then anoints them uh, and the tabernacle with oil. Uh, then moving on in the chapter, uh, verses 14 to 36, uh, various sacrifices are offered. Uh, they're offered for Aaron and his sons, and that happens over a seven-day period. What chapter 8 is describing uh, is the ordination of the first priests. And this special preparation ceremony was necessary uh, before they could begin their work. Uh, but what was their work? Well, the main function of the priests would be to serve in the tabernacle uh, to serve God. Uh, they were to bring the sacrifices to God, and as such, they were the key middlemen. Uh, they were the go-betweens. Uh, the people to, were, could not approach God directly themselves. They had to use the priests. As Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 puts it, they were appointed to represent them in matters relating to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. But before they could serve God in the, in the tabernacle, they had to undergo this seven-day ritual of sacrifice and cleansing. Uh, what qualifications did you need to do the job? Uh, well, it wasn't just something that anybody could apply for. It wasn't just a case of um, somebody saying, look, uh, I'm a bit fed up with looking after sheep. Uh, the shepherd development training program hasn't delivered all I was hoping. Uh, maybe I'll try something different. I quite like the idea of dressing, dressing up all these fancy clothes and being at the heart of the action. Maybe I'll put in an application to be a priest. It didn't work like that. It didn't work like that. Uh, it was to be a priest, uh, you had to be part of a particular family. Aaron's family. And indeed, it was only from Aaron's family and his sons and the subsequent descendants who could be priests in the service of God. Uh, others need not apply. And it's curious, uh, at the beginning of the ordination ceremony, uh, the priests were dressed up in these special outfits, which were then they had to wear those whenever they officiated. I've got a picture on the screen for you. Imagine wearing that in the desert. 
Uh, verse 13 describes how Aaron's sons were dressed in special coats and sashes and capes, caps. But Aaron himself got the fanciest outfit of all, uh, described in verses 7 to 9. Uh, because Aaron was the high priest, the chief priest. In addition to the basic coat and the sash, uh, Aaron got a robe and a fancy waistcoat and a breast piece and a turban with a plate of pure gold. Uh, to help you visualize it, uh, we've got it there. There's Aaron. Uh, what was the point of the special gear? Uh, if you go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 28, it says there the special gear was for the glory and for beauty. It was for glory and for beauty. You see, these guys had a very special job, and so they needed to be dressed in a special way. Uh, they were the go-betweens between God and the people. And they were to serve in God's tent, and they were to be in God's very presence. Uh, soberingly, uh, Exodus 28 verse 43 points out that if they didn't follow the dress code in the tabernacle, they would die. It was that serious. They would die. So the clothing uh, signifies that they have been specially set apart and cleansed from sin for the role they were to perform. Uh, now, this is all very interesting, uh, particularly if you're the sort of person who maybe loves history at school. Uh, maybe you're the sort of person who reveled in the lectures on the ancient Egyptians or the eating habits of the Incas. Uh, but if you're not one of those people, uh, what on earth does this have to do with us today? Well, I'm sure you've guessed by now that the answer to any such question is... Thank you, Elizabeth. Jesus, well done. Ten marks. <laughs> what a relief as well. Uh, absolutely right. Jesus. Uh, so many Old Testament events and people and the institutions and offices point forward to the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. If you like, they're like visual aids of the gospel. Uh, in terms of the title of this series, they are shadows of better things that are to come. And the Old Testament priesthood uh, is no exception. The Old Testament priests, they point forward, of course, to the coming of the greatest high priest, the Lord Jesus. Uh, the most extensive explanation of Jesus' role as high priest is in the New Testament letter of Hebrews, uh, chapters 3 to 10. And these chapters leave us in no doubt that Jesus is the ultimate priest who fulfills everything the Old Testament priesthood pointed to. A look at Hebrews 3, verse 1. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Uh, Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Uh, Hebrews 5, verse 5. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. As the sinless son of God, uh, Jesus didn't need special clothing to draw near to God. And in fact, the only special clothing he ever wore uh, was the purple robe put on him at his trial to mock him. Uh, what other basic clothing he had was divided up amongst the soldiers as he hung 
on the cross. Now that the ultimate high priest has come, we don't have priests anymore. Just as we saw last week, the sacrifices of chapters 1 to 7 are obsolete, so also the priests of chapters 8 to 10 of Leviticus are obsolete. They have been fulfilled in Christ. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the ultimate high priest. It's interesting, if you read your New Testaments, uh, nowhere does the term priest uh, come up to describe a particular person in the Christian church. Uh, In terms of leaders, uh, they are always described as either elders, pastor teachers, overseers, but a church leader is never described in the New Testament as a priest. But we do still hear today church leaders uh, being described sometimes as priests. Uh, That was on that little insert in my father's Bible, which he got his ordination. Uh, It is very misleading. It gives the impression that these church leaders today fulfill the same function as those Old Testament priests then. But the point is, of course, they don't. Church leaders today are not mediators. They're not go-betweens between God and people. Uh, Christ is, and Christ is the only one who is. As 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says, uh, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, uh, the man Christ Jesus. So you see, to use this term priests for a church leader is misleading. It divides the Christian church into two categories, uh, the clergy and the laity. But I don't see that distinction in the New Testament. Instead, the distinction we see within the church in the New Testament is purely functional. Uh, Different people have different gifts. uh, Different people have different roles to play within the body of Christ. And the gift of leadership and teaching is just one of many albeit a foundational one. And the special robes and all that paraphernalia that some church leaders wear in churches today is also very misleading. Uh, As you can see here, um, just look at these guys uh, and compare them with the Old Testament high priests. Uh, Isn't it like playing spot the difference? Because it's not that easy. And it can reinforce this misconception that in some way church leaders are in the same mold as the Old Testament high priests, but they're not. I'm not against uh, uniforms for certain positions in society. I've got no problems, for example, uh, with the police wearing uniforms as a sign of their authority, but I'm against it in the church. I think it's very misleading, and at worst, I think it's dishonoring to Christ. Uh, That's why I'm very thankful that here at Cherrybrook Presbyterian, we don't have a hang-up about these things. But here is the twist in the tale, because as we follow the Bible's trajectory, there is an unexpected twist in the tale. The New Testament nowhere uses the term priest of church leaders, but it does use the term priest of all people in the Christian church. Uh, Look at Revelation 1, verse 5 to 6. To him who loves us 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. At 1 Peter 2 verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. So you see, if you're a Christian today, you have been ordained to the priesthood. It happened the very day you became a Christian. On that day, actually, you became a priest. And therefore, it's quite legitimate in the front of your Bible to have an insert saying ordained as priest on and stating whatever day you came to faith in Christ. So here's the question. If we're all now priests through faith in Christ, what does that tell us about what we are to do? What is our function? Well, firstly, the Old Testament priest was set aside to serve God. And so if we are all priests, we are called to live our lives to serve God. Uh, Monday through to Sunday. Uh, 1 Peter 2 verse 5 says that we are a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So as priests, we offer to God the sacrifices of our whole lives lived for him, which is what we were seeing last week. So firstly, uh, we live for God's service. Secondly, as priests, we are to be a channel of God's blessing to the world. If we go back to Exodus uh, chapter 19, verse 6, it says of the nation of Israel there, uh, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Uh, What was one of the functions of Old Testament Israel? As a kingdom of priests, they were to be a light to the nations. Uh, They were to be a blessing to the other nations. And when we move to the New Testament church, the same is true. God wants to use Christians, he wants to use the church as a, being, a means of blessing to the people of the world as we proclaim the gospel and as we love people who come across our path. But if we are to function effectively as God's priests in this world, it is absolutely essential that we are dressed in the right priestly clothing. We can't function as God's priests if we don't wear the proper dress. What does the New Testament say we should be wearing as God's God's priests? Well, in 2007, a Catholic priest near Denver, Colorado, was arrested for indecent exposure after being found jogging in the nude an hour before sunrise. In his defense, the Reverend Robert Whipkey told police that he sweats profusely if he wears clothing while jogging. Seems perfectly reasonable to me. As the true priests of God, uh, we need to make sure that we go through each day fully and appropriately dressed. Uh, Firstly, uh, we need to be clothed with Christ himself and in the right standing with God that he gives. Look at Galatians 3 verse 27, it says this. For all of you were baptized into Christ, having clothed yourself with Christ. 
I remember that wonderful hymn of Charles Wesley. We sing there, clothed in righteousness divine. So we need to be clothed with Christ. And secondly, we need to be clothed with the Holy Spirit. Luke 24, verse 49, Jesus tells his disciples to stay in Jerusalem until you have been clothed with power from on high. And thirdly, we need to be clothed in godliness. Look at Colossians 3, verse 12. Clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness and patience. And over all these virtues, put on love. 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So I put to you this morning, if you're trusting in Jesus, are you properly dressed as a priest in his service? Are you trusting in Christ today? Are you relying on God's Holy Spirit for strength today? Are you committed to godly living today in every department of your life? Because this is the clothing that God wants his people to wear. And you can't order it from a clerical outfitters. So when we head out the door every morning, uh, it's worth pausing to think, have I got appropriately dressed? Never mind the suit and tie. Uh, what about my priestly clothing as a priest in God's service? So uh, we've seen uh, the ordination of priests, and we've spent our most time on that. Secondly, more Quickly, we're going to look now at the service of the priest in chapter 9. Uh, chapter 9 describes the first tabernacle service. Uh, it was taken by Aaron and his sons. Uh, the seven days of their ordination period was now over, and now they offer their first sacrifices. Uh, this is the big day, the one they've been preparing for. Uh, you can imagine the sense of anticipation when Moses tells Aaron in Leviticus 9 verse 4, today the Lord will appear to you. Then in verse 6 of chapter 9, this is what the Lord has commanded you to do, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. And so Aaron does what he's told. Uh, he offers the sacrifices as prescribed to make atonement for himself and for the people. And then he, when he's finished, he lifts his hands and he blesses the people. And then he comes down from the altar. And then he goes into the tent of meeting with Moses to meet with God. And you could hear a pin drop in the sand because all eyes are on the tent. And then we read in Leviticus 9 verse 23. When they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. So there it is, uh, the sign of divine approval. And the people, uh, they're delighted. They give this loud shout of joy, and they fall to the ground in reverence. Well, I don't know where you are. On the 9th of April, uh, 1969, it was a holy day. I speak from my own personal uh, bias. Uh, it was the day on which the British prototype of the Concorde first rolled down the runway 
at Filton Airfield near Bristol. Uh, as I was uh, days away from celebrating my fourth birthday, uh, I wasn't able to be there. But you can imagine, can't you, the delight of the engineers as they watched seven years of painstaking design and development successfully take to the skies for the first time. There is something of that sense of exuberance here as the whole machinery of the priesthood and the sacrificial system gets in the way for the first time. At last, it gets airborne. They followed God's painstaking instructions to the letter, and the waiting is finally over, and the mission is accomplished. Atonement has been secured, and the glory of God comes down, and the people can now draw near to him. But what is the relevance for Old Testament services for us today? Uh, Does this first service provide a template for church services today? Uh, How does the New Testament understand this? Well, as Liz has already pointed out to us, uh, the answer is Jesus. What those first priests were doing in that service is not a picture of what we do at church. Rather, it is a picture of what Christ has done in heaven. Look at Hebrews 9, verse 24. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary. That was, only, that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. At Hebrews 9, verse 12. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. So that first service, which was then repeated time after time in the tabernacle and later in the temple, has now been fulfilled in Christ. I used to help run a midweek lunchtime service in London in a church in Fleet Street. We shared the building with an Eastern Orthodox congregation. Uh, They had constructed a screen leading into a sort of tabernacle, an inner room. Uh, One day I arrived early, uh, during which one of their services was underway, to find the whole of this inner room behind the screen exuding this brilliant white light. I thought it's the Shekinah glory, but it turned out to be a set of very good halogen bulbs. The Old Testament services are not a model for what Christians are to do when they meet together. Uh, We shouldn't gather together today as God's people with the expectation that some human mediator is going to bring us into God's presence. That the service in some way builds up to some climax at which point that the glory of God comes down again. But that is how many people think today. Uh, It's no accident that the layout of some traditional church buildings replicates the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. I've got a picture for you there on the screen. Uh, In the traditional layout of many churches, there's this screened-off area at the far end of the church called the sanctuary where only the priests can go. Now, the altar, as it's called, there the priests offer the sacrifices of the mass. And special clothing heightens the Old Testament's parallel. But this is not the case. Uh, These Old Testament services have been fulfilled in Christ. 
Uh, Look at Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 22. It says, Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. You see, we have the privilege of drawing near to God. We have this privilege of entering his very presence as the priest did then, but we can do it anytime and we can do it anywhere. And we do it through faith in Christ. We don't need a special building and we don't need special mediators. So, we've seen the ordination of the priests, chapter 8, the service of the priests, chapter 9, finally, the death of the priests, chapter 10. Uh, tragically, uh, the joy of that first service is short lived. Uh, Leviticus chapter 10 relates how two of the priests each take a censer and, in verses 1, halfway through, it says they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. And so fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Back in chapter 9, verse 24, we saw the fire of divine approval consuming the offerings. But now we see the fire of divine disapproval consuming the priests. Uh, Why? Uh, Back in chapter 8, verse 4, we read this. Uh, Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Uh, That or a similar phrase is repeated 16 times in these three chapters. And it's against that backdrop that chapter 10, verse 1 sticks out like a sore thumb. It breaks the pattern. Uh, It's not exactly clear what these priests did wrong. But what matters is that it was something which the Lord had not commanded. Why on earth did they do their own thing? Uh, Was it pride, which thought, hey, we don't need to follow all these rules and regulations? Uh, Or were they just casual and careless? We're not told. But either way, they had lost sight of who they were dealing with. They had lost sight of what God was like. Look at chapter 10, verse 3. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Uh, God's holiness and his glory mean that we must only approach him in the way that he has commanded. The writing was on the wall back in chapter 8, verse 35, where Moses told the priest to remain for seven days in the tabernacle after their ordination. It says this, Do what the Lord requires, so you will not die. For this is what I have been commanded. Uh, on electricity substations, there's always, often the, always the following sign. Maybe you've seen it. Uh, danger of death. And in approaching God, we go, go past many such signs. Uh, God is holy, we are unholy. And that is a bad, a fatal combination. And if we try to draw close to him in any other way than what he has commanded, we're in danger of death. Not just physically, but spiritually, eternally. So in conclusion, for those who are not yet trusting in Christ, uh, this incident sends a clear warning 
Uh, God is holy, we are unholy. And if we try to approach him in any other way than through Christ Jesus, as he is commanded in the Bible, it's like offering unauthorized fire. It's a sure path to his judgment. But we know, of course, Christ is the perfect priest. Christ always obeyed. And when he entered heaven, he didn't need to bring any sacrifice for his own sins because he was sinless. But he did bring a sacrifice and he brought it for our sins. His own death in our place. And if we put our trust in his death for us and we look to him as our high priest, we can then draw near to God, not in fear, but in confidence. We have assurance that we are forgiven and that we can enter the most holy place. But this incident also speaks to those of us who already trust in Christ. It tells us to beware drifting away from the gospel to other ways of getting right with God. A letter of Hebrews was written to such people and it warns them in chapter 12, verse 29. Our God is a consuming fire. So, are you holding fast to Christ and his gospel this morning? Are you tempted to drift in any way? Are there areas of your life where you're prepared to play with fire and to compromise in your Christian faith? Because if so, uh, this incident warns us to get out of the danger zone. It encourages us to draw near to God again through Christ. Uh, he is the only mediator. He is the great high priest. This incident tells us not to take obedience lightly. That God is holy and he is not to be mocked. and He's not to be treated casually. We see, of course, in the early church... Uh, Examples there, people who did treat God casually. Ananias and Sapphira, in Acts chapter 5, are actually struck down for lying to God. So, if we're trusting in Christ, we are God's priests in the world. We have the privilege of drawing near to him, and we have the privilege of serving him. So, uh, where is God calling us to serve him? Uh, what is the people who he's brought into our lives whom we can love and serve and ultimately share the gospel with? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this incredible trajectory you see in the Bible uh, from the priesthood to Jesus, the great high priest, and then for all who put their trust in him us then acting as priests of the world, to the lost world. We pray, therefore, that we would have a deeper joy and confidence to access your holy, most holy place and presence through trusting in Christ and his blood alone, and that we would then seek to live lives of joyful service as we serve the world around us and live out the gospel before them. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our great high priest, and go between. Amen.